Welcome to LifePoint Church. Our mission is to glorify God and make gospel-driven disciples by engaging people in the unexpected joy of a life more and more dependent on Jesus. Philippians 4, 2 through 9. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made, known, be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. You know, one of the things that I've always loved, it's always fascinated me, uh, even, even back when I was a kid, I loved seeing and I've always been fascinated when, when we can find the, the places that the worlds of science intersect the world of theology and what scripture teaches about God's design in the Bible. That has always interested me and intrigued me even as a kid. And, um, you know, you can see this in lots of ways, but, but one of the ways that we see this is uh, in something called Hebb's Law. This was coined by Dr. Donald Hebb. He was a neuroscientist. And, and he, he, he said this. This is kind of a summary of Hebb's Law, and I'm not a neuroscientist. I'm not a scientist at all. It just interests me. So uh, those of you who are scientists, we should talk about this. This is fascinating stuff to me. But Hebb's Law says this. It says that cells that fire together wire together. He's talking about neuroscience. I don't know if you've heard this before, this idea that cells that fire together, talking about neurocells in your brain, they wire together, they forge neuropathways. This is how you learn stuff. This matters. If you're a CSU this year, you need to learn things. This matters if you're, if you're in school this year. And this matters if you're a follower of Jesus. We are called to learn things. And cells that fire together, they wire together. It's how our brains are built. And these pathways are forged and, and, and you eventually get what you could even describe as sort of like grooves in your mind, these, 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 these pathways that, that, that connect cells and, and, and the cells fire in your mind when you think. If you're thinking right now, there's cells firing and that means they're wiring together, they're connecting. When you do something physical, actions, this is how you learn to ride a bike. This is how you learn to, to you know, build a habit of watching Netflix till you fall asleep in front of the TV every night. This is how you learn to do things and, and get in, in these habits. Um, when you do things physically, it fires and wires together these, these neurons in your brain. It's how we were designed to operate. It's how God made us. 
And uh, you know, one there's a pastor and, 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 and an author, John Mark Homer, he describes this process, especially with regards to how it intersects the world of faith and what the Bible teaches this way. He, he describes like this connection from your mind to your thoughts to your actions to habits that eventually lead to character development. This is how we grow as people. These starting all the way back with the molecules in our brains firing and wiring together, we grow this, this mind to thought to action to habit to character and eventually our character will grow us into either more of what the Bible describes as slavery to sin, when we have these neuropathways, these grooves in our minds and our hearts and our souls that are, that are worn, that it's hard to maybe even get out of those grooves when those, those, those actions, those things that have fired and wired in our brains are, 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 are things that get us connected with sin instead of God's design and his plan and Christ's likeness. So we either end up, end up in slavery to sin or we end up in this process that, that in churchy language, we would use the word discipleship. It's this growing to become more and more like Christ, more like Jesus. And, and that means that the things that we do are influencing who we become. How and what you think about and how and what you do has a huge impact on what you are becoming. And it's happening not just on like this like, 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 like weird, amorphous kind of internal soul feeling level. It's happening physiologically in our brains and, and in our hearts. Now, Paul may not have understood the science behind what he wrote to the Philippians, but the Holy Spirit, Paul's source and power in his writing certainly knows how our creator made us and designed us. You know, this reality of, of, of the things that we do and think and kind of like our inner being, being connected to, to our physiological selves and who we are and how we behave, it's in stark contrast to our current culture, which, which tends to regard learning as like a passive thing that just kind of happens. It's mostly internal. It reveals the emptiness and danger in approaching our spiritual growth and, and disciple-making in this same kind of passive way. Um, and and you know, we need to be careful that, that we don't see discipleship simply as like doing passive things like listening to sermons or reading books. Those things are good, they're important, but, but if that's all that we do, our discipleship is gonna end up being incomplete. You know, our current like philosophical cultural values tend tend to, to, to like like place a high, high value on how we feel on the inside and discount uh, the, the significance and value of our physical beings. And we see this on all kinds of levels and all kinds of ways, and we could get into that, and that's maybe a, a whole nother discussion for another day. But but we are, need to recognize if we're gonna understand what Paul writes in this passage today. We need to recognize that the Christian worldview holds that our internal and our external worlds, our soul, our feelings, our thoughts, our minds, and our bodies are inextricably united and knit together by God's good design. Our hope as Christians 
is not that our souls will spend forever in a place called heaven. Our hope as Christians is that our souls will actually be reunited with our physical bodies and that we will physically live in, in a place that is with Jesus, our Savior, who is physically existing right now. Like these, these things are inextricably connected. As we wait for the return of Jesus, we are waiting and hoping and aiming and working and, and this process of sanctification is making us more and more like Jesus. This, our, 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 our aim in this life is to grow not just in our hearts and our minds and our feelings, but truly our whole selves to grow more and more like Christ. Zach talked about that some last week. And so as we get to our passage today, which if you're not open to it, I encourage you, open up. What a glorious piece of scripture we have today. Philippians 4, 2 through 9. Here's, here's kind of a, a one-sentence summary of what Paul's doing in this passage of these eight verses. Paul unpacks for us what Christ-like living looks like in three realms of life, Verses 2 and 3 are one realm, verses 4 through 7 are another, and verse 8 another. And then he summarizes with a principle, with a principle that is vital in verse 9, which is where we're going to start this morning. So look at verse 9 with me as we get started today. He summarizes after walking through Christ-like living, what that looks like in these, these first eight verses. Verse 9, he summarizes, he says this. He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. He doesn't say, just be sure to remember this stuff. He doesn't say reread this letter over and over so that you can just have it memorized. It's not enough to know in our heads. He says, I want you to practice these things, to live these things. You see, our sanctification is not meant to be only this internal process. It certainly begins there. It certainly involves an internal transformation. But if we follow the trends of our culture and society and embrace this idea that somehow there's, some, there's the difference between our inside and our outside and they're not inextricably united, we will miss. We will miss what it means to be sanctified and become more and more like Jesus. So in this section, after walking through three areas of life that tend to trip us up in terms of putting into practice these things, that Paul has been teaching throughout the letter, he, he summarizes with this big idea. It's like he's saying, don't just read and internalize the contents of this letter. Go and do what it says. You've got to put this into practice. You have to do it. You can't just learn it. This isn't just studying for a test and passing a test and knowing the right answers and agreeing with the right statements. This is how we live. You gotta do it. Or to state the broader principle, Scripture's truth is not learned until it is lived. 
Scripture's truth is not learned until it is lived. My friends, we are called not just to know and understand ideas. We are called to live Scripture's truth, to pair what's happening with our thoughts in our mind, with our actions in our life. Put it into practice. God's design for us is not simply to learn or agree or believe. It is to live this truth. And as we live it, it actually physiologically changes the way our brains work and our brains think. It changes not just how we behave, but it really truly alters who we are becoming. Now this, this concept is affirmed in James chapter 1. The brother of Jesus wrote this in his epistle. He, he said, don't be hearers of the word only. No, be doers of the word. Scripture's truth, it's not truly learned until it is lived. We are called to be practicing the word of God. And this morning, we're going to walk through three realms of life that, that Paul identifies, and he unpacks what it looks like to live Scripture's truth in these realms. And as we do, we're going to uncover an important reality that he shows at the end of that verse, at the end of verse 9, that as we live Scripture's truth, there's a huge payoff. We get to gain the peace of God. And it's beautiful. So if you, if you haven't opened your Bible, please open it. And I'd just like to say a prayer before we dive into to these three realms. Would you pray with me? Father, we are here, and you have, have made us, and you've designed us uniquely. And I pray, Lord, that today you would renew us. I pray, Lord, that today that your truth would not be merely something that that, that we understand on an intellectual level, but Lord, show us and call us and empower us by your spirit and by the work of Jesus that we could truly live what you have taught us and shown us and demonstrated to us in your word. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Scripture's truth is not learned until it is lived. And the first realm of life he addresses is in conflict with others. Look at verses, verses 2 and 3 with me. He says, I entreat, I plead with, I call Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now, we've talked some, a little bit, about the communication between Paul in, in prison in Rome and, and the church at Philippi. Like, this is not like a text your buddy and send an email or make a phone call. I mean, for Paul to know about a conflict between two particular people, it had to have been a serious conflict that was well known and was having a big impact. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that, that, that the messengers talked about that they carried. And Paul has, has already instructed the church to walk in unity. And, and, and he's done that back in chapter 1, verse 27 through chapter 2, verse 4. This is not new material. He's simply saying, hey, I've told you about this. You need to live in unity. And you got to actually do it, especially in conflict with each other. And especially you two people. <laughs> Imagine being called out (laughs) 
by name and some guy thousands of years later in a church in Fort Collins talking about this conflict that you have with your friend Syntyche. I mean, that's like, I can't imagine what that's like. But Paul is, is getting specific here and he's saying, hey, Euodia and Syntyche, you guys need to walk in what I've taught you. You need to walk in unity. The command here, he says, agree in the Lord. What does that mean exactly? This word agree, it's the same language that he used in, in chapter 2, verse 2, when he says, be of the same mind. You need to be united. Unity has been a theme in this, this, this whole book that we've studied. He's saying you need to have the same mind. Agree in the Lord together on this. Their agreement, they need to find unity in the call and the mission and the purpose of the church together. Now, while this, this disagreement must have been a big deal, a big enough deal that Paul's aware of it and is addressing it, we know that it didn't have to do with a central doctrinal issue because Paul is not afraid to call out doctrinal problems and errors when people are believing and teaching wrong things about Jesus or about God. So it wasn't a central doctrinal issue. We don't know what it was. If they were disagreeing about the color of the carpet in the foyer, or probably more likely something more serious than that. Maybe a disagreement about how best to move forward in ministry together. Maybe it was a disagreement in how to utilize the resources of the church. Maybe it was a disagreement in, 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 in how they would serve. We don't know the nature of it, but we do know that it was, it was a big deal and it was impacting the unity of the church. Now Paul's command is to be of the same mind, to agree in the Lord together, find unity together. It's interesting, he doesn't say, I want you to agree with each other. <laughs> Do you notice that? He says, hey, this thing's gone on a long time. I want you to agree not with each other, but agree in the Lord. What does this term mean, agree in the Lord? That should be familiar because we've seen this, this term in the Lord many times in this letter. In fact, if you've been studying Philippians with us here, uh, nine different times Paul says to do things in the Lord. He'll, 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 he'll start something and say, do this in the Lord. He, he says, be confident in the Lord. Hope in the Lord, trust in the Lord. He said, I want you to receive Epaphroditus, your friend, this messenger, receive him in the Lord. Three different times he says, I want you to rejoice in the Lord. He says, I want you to stand firm in the Lord and here I want you to agree in the Lord. What we've seen as Paul has in the past unpacked some of his hopes and plans in the Lord is that to do something in the Lord is to both acknowledge and submit our own agendas, circumstances, preferences, trust, and even, as we see here, our own right to be right. <laughs> to submit all of that to the Lord, to His purposes and for His good. We are to submit these things to Jesus. It's an act of faith and trust, and it's difficult especially in the midst of conflict. But Paul takes time at the end of the letter to say, hey, you can't just agree that unity is a good idea. You need to actually practice it. You too. 
Euodia and Syntyche, you need to go and agree in the Lord together. And it's interesting, we see here as you read through this, the call isn't just to these two women who had this disagreement. He, he calls to others as well, this unnamed true companion. He says, help them. <laughs> they have been servants in the Lord. They've been doing the Lord's work side by side along with other people. Maybe grab this guy, Clement, ask him to help too. We need to help them to agree in the Lord together. The call is to the whole church to take up unity and not, not to, to find agreement with each other, but agreement in the Lord, in his purposes, his aim, his goal. Living this truth forces us to sometimes embrace a, a trust and a faith in God over and above what our flesh craves, even when we're in conflict with somebody. Scripture's truth is not learned until it is lived even in conflict with others. But he goes on. He doesn't stop there. Look at verses 4 to 7. Scripture's truth is not learned until it is lived in our daily circumstances. Day by day, our daily circumstances, he's got instructions. And again, this is nothing new. Paul is not introducing a lot of new material here. He, he's, he's simply restating what he's stated over and over again. In fact, this call to rejoice rejoice he has this has been a theme throughout the letter seven times he's told the philippians rejoice it's a command he's telling them you need to walk in joy this is the heart of even our mission as a church we talk about the need for us to to walk with this this unexpected joy this joy that isn't linked to our circumstances but instead comes from a deeper well paul says here he says rejoice in the lord seven times throughout the whole letter and twice for emphasis here he says rejoice in the lord always again i will say rejoice how often all the time in all of your circumstances that's what always means here. And it's interesting, again here, they are not called to rejoice because there's things that make them happy in their daily circumstances. They're called to rejoice in the Lord. I think it's worth noting that the daily circumstances of a follower of Jesus in a place like Philippi in this day and age we're likely not the source of a lot of happiness. This is a day and age where the, if you follow Jesus in Philippi at this time, you could expect, and we know that this was happening, you can expect persecution because of your faith. You can expect walking with Jesus to cost you something. And not just financially, although certainly financially. It costs you opportunities, to cost you friends, to potentially even cost your very life. This was their daily circumstance. So, so when he says rejoice, he's not saying rejoice because every day is happy and great. There's certainly days like that, and we can rejoice in those. He says rejoice not in your circumstances, but in the Lord. And then he says it again, calls it to them, calls them to do this again. And then he goes on, and because the opposite of rejoicing is anxiety, Paul instructs them to live with a posture in their daily circumstances, day by day, a posture that, that 
rejoicing in the Lord can thrive even over and above the anxiety that our circumstances may be working to produce in us. Look at this posture in verse 5. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now this word reasonable here, it doesn't it, it doesn't necessarily mean like a, like a make sure that what you do makes sense to everyone is reasonable in that way. It's, it's, it's actually translated most often gentleness. Let your gentleness, let your, let your response to your daily circumstances be this gentleness that is, is evident to the people around you. That means that it's a gentleness that impacts how you behave and how you respond and the tone of your voice. This is in stark contrast to how I think we would tend to respond to the unjust suffering of persecution. We wouldn't respond with gentleness, with reasonableness. Our hearts well up with righteous frustration and anger, and understandably so, but he, he says, take this posture this kind of posture that, that does not allow anxiety to thrive. Take this posture, a posture of gentleness. Why? Why can we take that kind of posture that's evident to everybody? Because look at the Lord is at hand. That's an early, early church way of saying that God is near, the very presence of God. Do you remember Zach's sermon that unpacked this from Philippians 2 from earlier? in this series, Jesus himself, that all of, all of the goodness of God poured into a man, Jesus the Lord, who, who made heaven and earth, who is the embodiment of all of God's power and love and goodness. He's physically up at the right hand of God, but his spirit, the spirit of the Lord is at hand, is with us, is near. God is near. The very presence of the creator of the universe is near. We can take this kind of posture that rejoices even in awful circumstances because our maker is near and he's good and he loves you and he is near. The Lord is at hand. And so we can continually turn away from anxiety. Look at what this says. Because of this, because, because the Lord is at hand, we don't need to be anxious. Even though our circumstances warrant anxiety, your anxiety is valid, but we don't have to have a posture in life that embraces it. We can rejoice at the nearness of God in the midst of our circumstances because he is at hand. We can rejoice in him. We can turn away from anxiety and instead turn to God who is near in prayer with all kinds of supplications. A supplication, it's a fancy way of saying like a request for help. He invites you to say, Lord, I need help right now in this circumstance today. His nearness embraces our day-by-day -day needs in our daily circumstances. Come to me, he says, with your supplications, with your requests for help. Come to me with thanksgiving because, because in, in the nearness of the Lord, we have a hope that can leave us thankful even when our circumstances are costing us greatly. And the result of all this, this is beautiful, I love it. Verse seven, the result the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Oh, 
what a beautiful promise. What a beautiful result. This peace, he describes it, it surpasses understanding. It goes ahead. Our understanding is limited to what we see and to our circumstances and to, to what's around us. This peace surpasses it. It's like it, it races ahead. This is the racehorse that like gets way ahead of all the others. You know, like, that one's, I mean, it's not even a race. Like, like God's peace goes way out in front of us. It surpasses our understanding. It's bigger, it's better, it's way ahead of our understanding so that it can guard our hearts and our minds as we walk in, in rejoicing. So look at this. It's this beautiful path in verses four through seven. Rejoicing in the Lord is like the first steps on this path that leads to a place of a kind of peace that comes from God that is bigger than our circumstances. Isn't that beautiful? What an amazing way to live. That's not just an idea to agree with in our minds and, and, and a thing to try to wrap our, the feelings of our hearts around. No, this, this is a great way to live. And when we live this way, uh, the, the, uh, the way we perceive things, the physiological structure of our brains is changed as those cells that fire together, wire together in trust of God and we become more and more like Jesus on a deep, deep level. It is is beautiful. It is beautiful. Scripture's truth is not learned until it is lived in our daily circumstances. And then finally, verse 8. Look at this bouquet in verse 8. Scripture's truth is not lived until it's learned in our ongoing thought life. In our ongoing thought life. He says, finally, brothers, and this time he uses the word finally. He's actually really starting to wrap up the letter. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, whatever is, has any excellence or is praiseworthy, think about these things. This is one of those verses that we're probably pretty familiar with. I hope you are. I hope you've heard this. It's a beautiful verse. It's a great one to hide in our hearts, to, to, to allow to, 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 to take up residence in our head and our heart, to shape how we think and what we do. This is a great one. But have you ever wondered why Paul gives this instruction here? If, if we're putting into practice what verses four to seven say, and we have this peace of God, that transcends our understanding. Why do we need this instruction to focus our minds? Why does he give this? Why does this come here? Have you ever wondered that? You know, I think the reality is <laughs> we are really, really good at allowing things in our lives to take up the space that, that the peace of God wants to occupy in our hearts, in our souls, in our minds. And, and, and here, we're, we're really adept at that. We're, we're really good at that. But the reality is the peace of God simply cannot coexist in that space between your ears or that space underneath your, your ribs and your heart. The peace of God just it can't coexist with, with the kinds of things that we sometimes fill our thoughts with 
and fill our minds with. And so Paul instructs the church, it's almost like a training to guard this peace that, 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 that we enter into, this amazing thing that we only get through the work of Jesus. It's like he's saying, guard the space that this peace dwells, takes up residence within you. Train our ongoing daily thought life, he says. Train it to wire ourselves and our brains together so that we intentionally occupy the inner space of our lives with these things, these things that are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable, excellent and praiseworthy. Let these be the kinds of things that wear grooves and space in our minds and, and shape and channel where our thoughts and prayers and our hearts lead. You know, the study guide this week that Zach talked about, I, I hope you're using it, I hope you picked it up, had a great exercise to really understand and get at what Paul's instructing here in verse 8. And that is an invitation to look at these words and to, I, I like this exercise because it kind of helps us break the familiarity of, of maybe the way you have this verse memorized, break, break our, our heads and our hearts out of that familiarity to let the Holy Spirit work anew. And that is to go through and look at each of these words and see like what, what are the antonym? What's the opposite of these words? What are the things that, that we tend to let crowd the peace of God out of our hearts and our minds with? Oh, if, if you do that exercise, I encourage you to go through and prayerfully consider what's the opposite of the things that are true or honorable or, or, or just or pure or excellent or praiseworthy. And, and, and maybe that is something that God can help you identify and realize, realize the, the, the patterns of thinking in your day-by-day -day thought life, your ongoing thought life that derail you from his peace this gift he wants to give you as we walk and live in his ways. You'll find that, that we easily entertain things in our hearts that are just partly true or counterfeit or biased, that are shameful and immoral, unjust, inequitable, or embellished or vulgar or obscene or repulsive or inexcusable or deplorable, things that are blameworthy and crude and ignorant. We let these things take up residence inside of us and remember the things that we think and the things that we do shape who we're becoming and paul's saying let the things of god shape you into the image of christ jesus he instructs them to clearly and unequivocally cultivate an inner dialogue that is fertile ground for God's spirit to work while being difficult soil for the lies of Satan and the lies of our own broken flesh to take root. Think about these things, he says. So I go back to this idea from the beginning here. Cells that fire together, wire together. The things that we think about, the things that we do shape who we're becoming. That means that if we want to truly learn God's word, if we want to truly learn Scripture's truth, we have to live it. So just in summary, Scripture's truth, it's not really truly learned until it is lived in these realms in conflict with other people, in our daily circumstances, and in our ongoing thought life. Now I want to ask you, What kinds 
of habits and patterns of thinking and discipleship are happening in these realms for you. When you engage in conflict with other people, are you seeking for the way that you guys can agree in the Lord together? To set the, the, the priorities of Jesus above our own desire to win an argument or a conflict? In, in our daily circumstances, do you start down the path of rejoicing in the Lord day by day, always, in every circumstance? Are we living the truth of Scripture that, that, that takes us down the path to this place where we get to experience the peace of God that is beyond our understanding? How's your ongoing thought life? It's so easy to get stuck in a spin cycle of negative thoughts. And Paul here, you know, he's, he's not saying think your way to Christ-likeness, but he is saying make your thought life fertile ground for the peace of God to take root, for the presence of Jesus to shape your very being. This is what it means. This is what it means for us to practice these things that we have learned and seen and, and these, these things that, that, that we have received in the truth of God's word. I want to invite you to prayer with me. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I ask that you would help us to see the ways that we can live the truth of Scripture. Lord, don't just fill our heads with knowledge, but fill our lives with steps that are, are taken and placed by your Spirit in accordance with your will and your work. God, I pray that we would have that peace that belongs to you. I pray for my brothers and sisters here. I pray for my friends, Lord. I pray that you will help us to live the truth that you have shown us, that you have demonstrated to us that we've received in you. Empower us to do that by the work of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray today. Amen. That concludes LifePoint Church's podcast. For more information about our church, visit sharethelife.org.